In order to find healing in any part of our lives, it's vital that we identify and name the unnamed things inside of ourselves. These are things that cause us shame, guilt, insecurity, and pain, unaddressed secrets, and trauma that have yet to be brought out into the light. Today's guest knows a thing or two about this. She's a senior at the University of North Georgia, studying psychology, with plans to do graduate work in counseling psychology. She's walked a very difficult road and is here for an honest conversation about voicing the hidden stuff in our lives. I am so proud of her courage and I'm honored to have walked a lot of this journey with her in recent years. You'll be both inspired and informed by her story. Here now is my conversation with Rachel Redman. It is an honor to have with me today a very special guest that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while. I've been privileged enough to be at her side as a friend through a lot of what she'll share about in this conversation and have nothing but the greatest admiration for her bravery and perseverance. Rachel, my dear, it's a joy to welcome you here to the Grace Moments podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a privilege to be able to share and to learn alongside you. First of all, let's begin by revisiting your childhood. You grew up in an interesting family dynamic with lots of siblings. You were homeschooled. Um, things that were very impactful on so many levels and shaping you as a person. Talk about that with us a little bit. What was life like for you growing up? Absolutely. So for me, I was the oldest of 16 kids. Um, my family did not originally plan on having that many kids, um, but it just happened that way. Um, and uh, growing up, I was very much the ringleader, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, being the oldest of uh, that many kids. Um, there were 10 boys and six girls and about two years, two years apart between each. Um, from probably age 11, I was expected to be the role model. So I was um, the parent, um, like a third parent um, from a very, very early age. Um, it was a good thing in some aspects in that I got great experience working with kids, um, understanding child development, um, but it was also very harmful um, because it's really not the role of a kid to raise another kid. That's a parent's, <laughs> parent's job. So for me, it really removed any childhood that I had and forced me to be an adult from the time I was 11. It wasn't, it was, it was a very interesting experience that I look back as an adult now and see very differently um, than I did as a kid, but I would say it was a good experience growing up. And that was going to sort of lead into my next question a little bit. As with most families, you know, there was also a dysfunctional aspect to your family and that began to manifest itself in some unhealthy and damaging ways as you, you know, grew up. Would you care to touch on that or elaborate a little bit more? Sure. So I don't think I realized the dysfunction um, until I was in my 20s. Um, 
I came from a background where girls were expected to be solely wives and mothers. Mm. Um, so for me, uh, my path was kind of laid out from the time I was born. Mm. Um, there was a, a double standard for guys. Um, guys were um, given more opportunities, facilitated with more resources. It's just mm. a very different environment for guys and girls. Um, it was a very pink world and blue world to grow up in. Um, so I didn't learn a lot of skills that I needed as a functional adult. Um, never paid a bill before. Um, didn't know how to change a tire on a car. Um, barely managed through school, really struggled in school. Just a lot of things that most kids, regardless of their gender, uh, have the opportunity to learn and grow. But growing up, it seemed normal to me because that was the environment that I was in. And you really only know, you know, what you know based on the environment you're in. So growing up, um, I thought I had a fairy tale childhood. And I think most parents want to shield their kids from as much of life as possible. Um, but it got to the point where as we aged, it was less shielding us from life as it is and more um, of a gosh, how to put it, more of a controlling aspect to a point of, I wouldn't say abuse, but it was borderline. Um, controlling what we wore, what we ate, where we went, who we talked to, uh, the normal stuff that you would expect parents to have rules about, um, but taken to the extremes. Mm -hmm. um, most parents say, you know, kids need to at least have decent clothes on. Um, some moms don't like their kids wearing holes in the jeans, kind of, you know, basic rules. Um, for us, it was skirts had to be down to a certain length, had to be a certain shape. Um, shirts could only have sleeves, no baseball caps on girls, just a lot of extra rules um, that I didn't realize were control. It was just the environment I grew up in again. So for me, as I was older and I started thinking and becoming critically um, critical about why I believed what I believed and what I believed, uh, I started realizing that a lot of those things that we were raised in were um, kind of man-made ideas, um, very controlling for the purpose of directing where we kids went in life. Um, and they shifted away from like a, the biblical perspective that it started out as and more turned into just a way to manipulate. Um, so it was very dysfunctional, but again, I didn't realize it until I was an adult. Um, and that took some time um, just to start peeling away the layers of, okay, what is true and what is perspective and what is fact and calling things like they were um, and realizing that sometimes people who you love the most can be dysfunctional and can be harmful to you. And it's very hard to be able to acknowledge that and to see it for what it is. While you stayed at home longer than quite a few young people, you eventually reached a point where you felt the need to spread your own wings and you moved out in 2018. Considering the more restrictive upbringing that you know, you're talking about, would you share about some of the specific positives of moving out that you experienced, the freedom to do certain things, the independence to find your own way. 
as well as the struggles that came with that, including discovering, you know, various ways that you were essentially unequipped for adult life once you were out on your own? Absolutely. So I came to 24 years of age, still living home. And I sat back and I think every person when they hit 25 just has like this milestone moment where they go, I'm 25. Like a lot of life has passed. What am I doing with life? And for me, um, I was getting close to that period in time and I was sitting back going there's only so many floors you can mop (laughs) there's only so many diapers you can change in a day I want to be using my life in a productive way that's honoring and glorifying to God a and b using the skill set that he's given me instead of just sitting on them um, and just not doing anything with my life so I prayed about it for a long time Um, I had taken some community college classes um, as a way of giving myself some practical skills. Um, But that became a problem with my dad um, when he realized that he couldn't control me and the content that I was um, learning in my community classes quite as much because I wasn't home 24 seven. I was gone three days a week for classes in the afternoons or mornings, whatever that was. Um, And I quit those community college classes and I just sat back and I went, what is the purpose of my life? What is my goal with it? What am I using it for? And as I sat back and thought about that, I began to pray about it. And I spent a solid six weeks praying and talking to mentors, um, pastor's wives, um, friends that I really looked up to um, and the direction their lives were going, just really respected. And I sat back and I said, what is the biblical answer to this? Because what I've learned is that women have no place in society except for mothers and wives, not to downplay those roles in any way because they're beautiful roles, but is that really all God has for women? Is that really all they're good for? Is that really all they're capable of? Um, Do we not need to learn math because we're never gonna use it beyond grocery shopping? Do we not need to learn useful skills because we'll be at home all day? Or is there a different standard? So I began digging in, asking questions, Talked to my mom a bit about it. She was a little negative um, because I think she started to get worried about the situation. And um, when I spoke to my mentors, my ultimate question was, is it wrong to have a different opinion than a particular authority figure? Is it morally wrong to have beliefs that are different from my parents? At what stage does honoring your parents mean physically obeying them and how does that differ as a child when you're five or six versus a 25 year old I mean what does that look like is that is there a role of of gender that plays in is it just straight up do what your parents say for the rest of your life because you're a woman um and that was difficult for me because I'd had 25 years of teaching me that my only role in life was to be finding a husband and Mm -hmm. me oh my I'm 25 and I'm still not married what am I going to do with my life 
And it was very challenging. It was very challenging. So I talked and prayed with a bunch of mentors that I really respected. And I came to the conclusion that um, sometimes we do differ with our authority figures. It's not necessarily the content, although the content matters. It's more the hard attitude. Are you trying to do something that honors God or are you trying to do something that is what you want to do with your life? Um, because there's a difference. And for me, I really felt that God was calling me in one direction and it was different than what my parents had believed. So um, my dad, my dad uh, disagreed with me and I, I came to him and I said, Hey, you know, I would like to move out. I would like to go to college, um, pay my big girl bills, do the big girl life. I really want to be responsible for myself. Um, and at that point, he had been trying to get me married to someone. It was not arranged marriage, but it was not far from it. And he was really pressuring me to marry this guy um, that was a friend of mine, highly respected him, just not as a marriage partner. Um, and when that fell through, um, the relationship kind of started souring because he realized he couldn't necessarily control me into a marriage anymore. Um, and at that point, I was also realizing if I got married to someone that he had picked out, I was essentially marrying my dad 2.0 for the rest of my life. And I thought, wow, this is scary. This is a level of control that is not healthy mm -hmm. and honestly toxic, um, not biblical, um, slightly terrifying, frankly. <laughs> and so that was about the time I had been praying about moving out. And I had one final conversation with my pastor's wife. And I said, you know, I really, I really want peace about this. And so she said, well, we'll pray right here. And so she stopped what she was doing. And she prayed with me that day. And I really felt like God was calling me to go a different direction than my parents. So I moved out, um, gosh, probably two weeks, two months before my 25th birthday. Um, and I moved in with a friend who uh, was going to be my roommate. We got along great. Um, she helped me determine everything from how to register my car <laughs> to how to pay a cell phone bill. Um, it was very new to me. It was honestly a little terrifying trying to learn how to be an adult independently. Um, and it was a good experience, but it was very terrifying because I realized the extent of what my parents had not prepared me for by having this controlling and honestly unbiblical view of what girls are capable of in the world. And I don't think it all hit me at once. I think it was a very slow progress those first two years of realizing, oh my goodness, <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? What do I not know? A lot of things. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? And about three months after I'd moved in, I had been set up with a friend who I'd been told um, was an incredible Christian man. He was in the army. He was a little older than me, two years older. Um, he was a friend of a friend, so they knew him a little. And we had gone out, dated once. Um, he seemed really nice, dated twice. Second date, he ended up taking me and um, abusing me, physically abused me. Um, and I was in shock. 
I was still processing moving out. It had only been three months. Still processing the rejection from my parents um, as they cut me off completely from my family. Um, so it was very, it was very hard to process all the emotions that I was going through at the time. And I thought the easiest way was just put a smile on it, grin and bear it, say it's in the past, we're moving forward, it's what it is, you know, you can't change the past. Um, and it got to the point where it must have been the end of that year. So it would have been 2018, the end of 2018, I had started my first college classes and my professors saw my deterioration mentally, just plummet at on almost mind blowing speed. Um, I wasn't functioning, I wasn't sleeping. I was working 30 hours on top of 40 hours worth of classes as a full-time student and a full-time employee. I was trying to fill the time so that I wasn't in my head and just moving forward. But the problem with just moving forward is that you haven't necessarily acknowledged, and in my case, this was very true, I hadn't acknowledged where I come from and what I was going through. And I think that's something a lot of people do is they fill their time with things, whether it's cell phones or hanging out with friends or um, shopping or hobbies or whatever, and they don't stop to sit with themselves. I remember realizing this as I couldn't sit with myself in silence I always had to have some music going or something so that my mind was not focused on where I was mentally. And a professor <laughs> reached out to me and she said, I think you need to come down with me to visit this particular office one day. I had just gotten into my first car accident. It was, it was just, it was six months of back to back, everything wrong that could have gone wrong in an adult life just happened back to back. And so she said, I think you need to meet someone. So she walked me down to this office, which was two doors down from her classroom, pulled me out of class to do so. And, and she walked me into this therapy office. And I said, oh, we're in therapy now. Okay, this is embarrassing. And I wasn't really willing to acknowledge what I was going through at the time. Um, it's just easier to pretend like nothing happened. Um, and I remember sitting down at the therapist's office and she just said, start from the beginning. So I said, okay. So I just talked for 50 minutes and I remember talking the next session. She said, okay, come back next week. So I came back next week. And I remember talking that second session for another 50 minutes and she just sat back and she listened, just really listened. And I felt comfy because she was listening. She wasn't judging. She wasn't sharing opinions. She wasn't telling me how to live my life. She was sitting back and listening to me. And it's rare that you find someone who actually truly knows how to listen, like really listen. Mm -hmm. And she sat back and she was listening. 
And I think that's the moment when things started changing in my life for the better, but it had been six, I mean, six months straight of just back to back to back. Um, so it was, it was a lot of, a lot of adjustment moving out. <laughs> well, and I want to dive just a little bit, if you don't mind for some that may be listening or, or whatever into, um, into your incident with um, being abused as well, because um, as someone that was your friend at the time, I remember going through that and even after it happened, it was months before you actually told me the details and really was at a place where you could even talk about it. But, you know, would you mind just sort of sharing a little bit about what happened? Um, obviously you touched a little bit on sort of your coping mechanisms and sort of how you dealt with Mm -hmm. that secret you held inside yourself and, and kind of kept going. Mm -hmm. But I think for people to understand that better, I think it would be, it would be important for you to flush that out just a little bit for, for folks a little, and eventually sort of, you know, how you were able to sort of name the unnamed thing and, you know, be able to finally call it what it was. Absolutely. So for me, I think one of the things that I experienced that I think a lot of people experience is part of the biggest struggles in our lives is naming the unnamed, naming the thing that we want to keep in the dark, naming what's hurting us, even having the ability to understand what's hurting us. So in therapy, one of the things that you learn is not okay, I'm going to go to therapy and they're going to tell me how to fix all these problems and everything's going to be great in my life and everything's going to be healed and I'm no longer going to hurt. It's just not how therapy works. Therapy is sitting there and being seen and heard and by extension, just being loved. You are not there to have all your answers given to you. You're there to work through your problems with yourself. Mm-hmm. And to have someone who sits there and supports you through that and says, okay, what are your real struggles here? What are you not willing to name? And one of the first things that it was probably session three, after I had talked two sessions, 15 minutes each, we got to session three and she started, my therapist started talking for the first time. And it was mostly just questioning how I, how I thought about things, um, how I felt about things, what, what my impression of these circumstances were. And I realized I'd never sat to think about how I felt about it. It was just easier to brush it under the rug. And one of the first things you learn in therapy is to name your emotions. It's so critical to name your emotions because if you don't know how to name your emotions, it's very hard to know what you're dealing with. Emotions I think in a lot of Christian circles, emotions are evil, they're bad. We're taught that they're just horrible things. You shouldn't have them, stuff them down. They're results of a wicked heart, but emotions are God-given. Emotions are God's way of showing you in your human self that there is a problem of some kind or there is a response you're having to a certain situation, stimulus, whatever the case may be. And for me, shoving things under the rug wasn't working, obviously. So I was having emotions that 
you could term negative. There aren't really any negative emotions, but right. you could term them negative emotions. I was very anxious. I was easy to set off. In, I mean, I, I would cry at the drop of a hat. I was extremely jumpy. I couldn't have anyone in my space bubble without losing my mind. I would jump out of my skin if anyone touched me on my shoulder or my arm. I was unable to sleep. I was insomniac, essentially. Um, I had nightmares all the time. I couldn't watch TV or listen to music or anything that referenced women. Um, it was a very painful time, but I didn't know how to process those emotions. Hmm. So as I sat back with them and my therapist started approaching me and saying, you know, what, what do you feel about this? What is your impression? You keep using this word. Do you mean, and trying to understand where I was coming from to know how to help me. And I will never forget one of the first breakthroughs I had through my process of healing was sitting back when my therapist said, you keep using the word used. He used you. Occasionally you'll use the word abused. Do you want to think about that for a minute? And I said, I never thought about that. I don't, I don't really realize I'm doing that. She said, yeah, let's call it what it is, shall we? And I sat back and I thought, synonyms for used. I don't know what those are. And then it dawned on me. She's asking me to use the word rape. Mm-hmm. And I sat back and I sat, I sat with that for a solid five, 10 seconds. And I just thought about it. And the word went through my mind several times and I burst out in tears and I have never cried so hard for so long in that 50 minutes mm-hmm. as I have had in probably any part of my life. And it just, it was like a wave of freedom but at the same time, a wave of pain, Mm -hmm. because when you call the unnamed what it is, Mm -hmm. it puts it in the light, it takes it out of the dark, and it puts it in the light and says, this is what it is. You can't move forward until you acknowledge what is, is, but it doesn't stop there. Just because you're in pain does not mean that's the end. Mm -hmm. And that's the point of therapy is to walk through and say, this is what you're struggling with. You're struggling with the rape. You're struggling with family abandonment. You're struggling with control and abuse and all of these new situations at the same time. And you're feeling overwhelmed and that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's a normal response. It's probably honestly a healthy response. Mm-hmm. And let's work through that. But we're not gonna just stop at this feeling and say, okay, this is where you're at. So sorry, you feel awful. You know, you can never move forward in life because you had this awful record of, you know, you've been abused and it's just, oh, woe is me. No, it was the beginning of my healing because you can't fight a battle unless you know what you're fighting. And so for me to call it what it was, was the first step toward moving in a direction where I acknowledge that I've been hurt in some pretty physical, emotional, and mental ways that I can't just snap my fingers and it go away. It never will. But there is an incredible power in calling the dark into the light. And this is what Jesus does all the time, every day, through scripture, through 
people, he calls things out of the dark into the light because if he doesn't, there's no way to move forward. Mm-hmm. And it's very painful, but that's why we have support systems in place that is very important to find, whether it's a grandmother, whether it's an older mentor in the church, whether it's a friend, a therapist, a trusted um, older person in your life, whatever the case may be, finding that support system and having a mentorship where they can call the dark into the light so that you can begin healing. It was, it was not a pleasant experience in any way, shape or form as I know all abuse survivors will um, fully understand and acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it allowed me to start moving forward um, in ways that I didn't realize I was stuck in. Um, it's called ambiguous loss when you're grieving the present in your life and you can't move forward. You may not have lost a family member or something significant where there's death, but you're grieving the loss of something that was once there. And it's very hard to move past ambiguous loss, but you can do it if you are willing to call the dark into the light. One thing I think that I'm curious to know from your point of view, coming out of what you did with your family, then a few months later hitting the rape incident and everything physically, emotionally, mentally that that entailed, did it affect your ability, especially with male figures, to have a decent relationship for a while? Were there some trust issues that came out of that when it came to you know, dating and friendships and things like that, where there was a negative attachment, because I know for some people that have come out of that, I know that that's an issue where, you know, whether it was, you know, women or men or whatever else, there, there can be sort of a generalization where all, you know, whoever's are bad because, you know, this handful of people treated me this way or whatever. And, and it can be hard mentally to get past that. I was just curious to know if that was something that you dealt with a little bit. I know this is very common um, as a mindset. And I think we're preconditioned by our culture to automatically respond in this way when we're hurt. Um, oh, this guy treated me badly in a relationship. Therefore, all men are bad. Or, oh, my mom wasn't a great mom. Therefore, all women are bad. Um, and it's almost a joke in our culture because it's a stereotype, but for one, it's not healthy. Um, personally, I think for me, it was more of a fear. Um, I could not have people in general in my space bubble. Um, if you were to walk up behind me within three feet of me, I would have come out of my skin to the point of tears. Um, I'm an emotional person anyway, so tears are not uncommon, but there, this would have been like sobbing level. I could not deal with people in my personal space bubble. And as a cashier <laughs> working through college at the time, that was very hard because I was around people in close contact all the time. So that took a lot of work. Um, <clears throat> I don't think I ever necessarily had a perspective of 
oh my goodness, this guy hurt me. And therefore I'm like super untrustworthy of any guys. I did have a lot of feelings that I struggled with for a long time thinking, well, this is my fault. Well, maybe if I did something differently, Mm -hmm. maybe if I was, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I think that's very common for survivors to take on that guilt and say, oh, it was my fault. And we live in a society that says automatically, oh, it's your fault. If you were dressed differently, if you were not talking so friendly or cheerfully to him, he may not have interpreted it as flirting. Um, You know, the, the excuses are endless, but what it comes down to is recognizing that each person is capable of wrongdoing and they have to take responsibility for that. And if they choose to harm another person, that is their sole decision. It is a very bad decision, but it is their decision and they're responsible for the consequences of that. And unfortunately in rape culture, it flips the tables a little bit and it turns it on its head and says, oh, you were raped. It's your fault. Fix it. You know, as if that person isn't already struggling with feeling maybe it's their fault somehow, you know, maybe they did something to ask for physical abuse in some way to their person. It just doesn't make sense to me. But I remember struggling with a lot of those feelings going, am I the only one? I don't want to talk about this. This is awful. I feel awful already. I feel like trash that was picked up used, thrown away, and I'm no good anymore. I'm not worthy of love. I'm not, I don't want to ever date again, because what if that happens again? And my self-esteem is already down the toilet because I feel awful about it. I've got so much shame. And it took a very loving person to sit back and go, okay, first of all, they were responsible for their actions, whether they take responsibility for that or not, their consequences will eventually get to them. Sadly. Um, and secondly, the shame needs to disappear. There's no place for shame. It's not a situation that you asked for. It's not a situation that you welcomed or that you wanted. In fact, you kicked and screamed and were thrown around from it because of that. Um, it's not a situation that was fun. It's not a situation that you can just blink out of your mind. It's with you. It's there. It happened. Um, and it took a solid 18 months, two years before I was able, even able to just acknowledge it and get to the point where I could say, this happened and it's okay. Mm-hmm. The power of healing comes when you're able to say, and this hurts and I can move on. This hurts and I can still heal. There's not an either or. There's a place in the middle where you can say, evil happens <laughs> and God can still do something out of it. There's, there's really no stop in between where it's either or. And for a survivor of physical abuse or verbal abuse or emotional or any kind of abuse really, having the ability to say, it's okay to feel hurt. I can move past some of this as I heal in healthy ways and I can still hurt and I can let go of this shame that I'm carrying around as if it was my fault somehow. 
And there's that such a power in the use and because it really opens up the door toward healing that I realized later on would change how I viewed my relationships. I didn't fear dating again. I didn't fear walking to the grocery store at 8 p.m. because it's dark now. I didn't fear a lot of things the survivors struggle with, not because I'm just some sort of superhuman, because I'm really not. I was a blubbering mess for years. Um, but because somebody showed me the power of and that you can be scared, but you can take steps forward. And I think that's really powerful for anyone who's faced any kind of trauma is just realizing there's a space for both. And it's it's a totally allowable, um, honest and justifiable, valid response is, is that little and right there. That's so good. Since you came out as an abuse survivor, you've made it a focus of your life to advocate for others who may be going through similar trauma of their, of their own. In fact, you're getting your degree in psychology with the intent to come alongside others who may need both your personal and professional experience to find peace for themselves. How does your past inform your present and your future and drive you to offer others what you didn't necessarily get yourself? Now, that's a really good question because I think it's multifaceted. Uh, for me, I would not be alive physically um, had I not had that one individual walk me down and say, I care enough about you to tell you that you need a little bit of help from a mentor. And in this case, your mentor is a therapist. And it was very challenging to accept because it's easier to just say, I'm fine. I'm fine. We'll brush it under the rug it's fine. But understanding, I think understanding that we're not always fine mm-hmm. <laughs> is the first step toward moving forwards. For me, getting my degree in counseling was a decision that I did not originally enter college in for. Um, it was a response um, of sitting there and watching how my life changed because one human being sat there and helped pull the dark into the light and said, I care about you enough to not let you stuff this under the rug any longer, ever again, preferably. But particularly in this moment, as we're healing, we need to call it what it is and we need to move forward. And sometimes that means blubbering in tears on the couch. And sometimes that means we're doing great for the day. It just depends. Um, Healing is not on a time scale. It's not a linear track, it's up and down, it's sunshine and rain. It's it's really, it's such a different process for each person. So for me, the choice to go into counseling was really realizing that had I not had that one person walk me down to my therapist's office, um, I didn't have anyone else in my life at the time that I was comfy talking about the worst secrets that I was carrying around with so much shame and heaviness. I just, I didn't feel comfy with anyone at that time because I had no family um, that, you know, my family had had essentially rejected me. So I couldn't talk to my mom about it. Um, I was embarrassed to talk about it with extended family. It was very hard. Um, So talking to an independent, um, new person who didn't know anything about me, wouldn't judge me, was very helpful. Um, 
and it really changed my focus on healing. For me, um, I think that I came to the realization that my life did have hope. I didn't always have to feel like this. There was a potential end to the journey and it was a positive one. I didn't always have to feel depressed and embarrassed and ashamed and anxious and trying to stuff things down. I had someone I can talk to and I could start the process of healing, which is a lifelong thing. I mean, everybody has something they're healing from. And I realized with that hope that I wanted to share that hope because one out of every six women in your life has been raped at some point in their life. One out of every six. So if you sit there in church and you look at the people across your church, every sixth woman has been raped. You go to Walmart or the grocery store, every sixth woman in your path has had some form of physical abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, most of it's physical. It happens in relationships. It happens more often with people you know. Uh, it happens in marriages. It happens to strangers. And those people are hurting. And a lot of people can't talk about it. And a lot of people feel held back because they feel like they're the only one that's carrying around the shame. And it's very painful. So for me, I wanted to share that if I had hope, because somebody reached out to me and said, healing hasn't, uh, it's, it's got a path in your life. It's not something you have to be depressed and ashamed over forever. Um, that person essentially is the reason I'm alive today. And I want to be that to someone else. I want to be able to hold their hand while they're walking through trenches and say, yeah, you're sitting in the mud right now, but we can actually get on our feet. And then once we're on our feet, we can start walking forward. And once we're walking forward, we can start climbing up the hill out of that mud. And then when we're at the top of the hill, we're not going to stop there. We're going to wash you off with this hose and get all the mud off you. And we're going to keep going. And then once you're clean from all that mud, you're going to take somebody else's hand and you're going to do the same thing for someone else and pass it on. And I've seen the power of just being there for one person. You don't have to heal the world. You don't have to be there for everyone. But holding out your hand for one person is enough to essentially save somebody's life. Um, you never know what people are going through. And it's very easy to throw on a smile and say, I'll just stuff under the side of the rug. It's easier to not talk about it at work or with friends or whatever. And oftentimes your closest people in your life, you don't realize how much they're hurting. So having that opportunity to hold out a hand of hope is so incredible to me and a privilege because it means I get to do the same thing that my mentor did for me that honestly saved my life and it would be amazing to be able to do that for someone else so that's the direction I'm taking with my education um, it's, it's to give me an opportunity to grow as a person but my education is not just for me um, it's really and truly to give me the skill set to keep going in order to help other people. Um, so it's, it's, it's sustained me through some pretty bad semesters and some pretty challenging situations, but that's the goal with my direction. That's beautiful. In the years that have passed, there's been 
some healing within your family, but that's still an ongoing complicated process. What advice would you give to someone who's in a relatable situation and hasn't yet worked through that estrangement with their loved ones, particularly if the loved ones were partly responsible for some of the pain that that person uh, carries? Oh, that's so hard. That's such a hard place to be because especially when you come from a close family like I did, um, you want that relationship restored. You want there to be a lack of conflict. You want to feel close to your loved ones again. But I think one of the hardest things I had to learn to accept was that conflict involves two parties and it requires that you meet in the middle of the road. One person cannot be responsible for healing the damage or even being willing to approach conversations about the damage. You both have to be willing to meet in the middle of that street. And sometimes people are not ready for that. That is one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to learn was sometimes people are not okay and not ready. And we have to remember that everybody's on a different journey in life. Nobody is at the same place in their journey. Some people's journeys are faster. Some people take longer to learn. I am definitely the second party. Um, some of us need hit over the head with a baseball bat and said, hello, have you not learned this lesson yet? That, that, that's me. And it's very difficult to be willing to acknowledge, hey, they don't want to make things right. They don't want to fix this problem. They don't want to have a close relationship. But that's an acknowledgement that you have to make in conflict resolution is that both parties have to be willing to deal with the issues. So I can sympathize. <laughs> it's not been fun. Um, I still don't have communications with my parents. I would love that. Um, but there has to be a willingness to meet in the middle of the road and respect each other as individuals, as humans, um, especially as Christians. Um, and that's not always the case. Some people are very stubborn and fixed in their ways. Other people are, don't understand forgiveness. Um, some people just, I think some people are more focused on self-love than loving others. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to make themselves happy, but that's they're not willing to meet you in the middle. And it's a very challenging case for anyone in conflict resolution with a family member like this. Um, so I don't think there's an easy answer, but I do know um, for those who go through it to realize that Jesus says, be at peace with all men in as far as you can. That's not fix all the problems yourself and then you'll be happy. That's a, you do your part to meet in the middle and fix whatever you can. And they have to meet you in the middle. It's a very challenging realization to come to, but it is required in order to fix that conflict. I wanna talk a bit further about naming the unnamed things in our lives because to a certain extent, we all have them. You said something profound in a conversation we had a while ago, and I've circled back to it several times. 
You said you can't stab in the dark what you can't see. You have to be willing to break it into the light so you can know what you're dealing with. In your experience, how does it affect someone when there is a hidden unspoken thing that hasn't yet been identified? And in what ways will that unaddressed disturbance impact their life? It will hold you back. It will hold you back in some form or fashion. It may affect your marriage. It may affect your ability to personally move forward with personal growth. It may affect your church relationships. It could even affect your work relationships. Like there's no end of ways that the unseen can hold you back. And it's challenging because we as people can't see our blind spots. Um, We can't see where we're struggling, which is why it's so important to have people alongside you in any form or fashion, whether it's a podcast like this, whether it's a personal friend, whether it's a parent, a spouse, whatever the case may be, having those people with you that can call out the unseen and say, hey, you're struggling with this. You want to talk about it and being willing to be open. Um, there are a lot of feelings that come alongside calling out the, the in the dark things. Um, embarrassment, shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, depression, anger. The, I mean, the list is, it goes on and on and on. But on the flip side of that, having the ability to call those things out is so freeing so freeing. It may take a while to work through the consequences of those feelings, but if you don't call out the stuff in the dark, you can't move forward. You're always hiding in the dark. It's like walking into a cave and hoping you don't trip over the bear that's obviously there and just praying, oh, maybe I'll eventually make it out of the cave, but walking away from the light and saying, yeah, this is definitely the right direction. You're gonna trip over the bear at some point or the other. And when you trip over that bear, he's not gonna be happy. You probably woke him up from hibernation, which is a lot of our issues. We hibernate them, we've kicked them under the rug and we don't wanna talk about them. But the reality is if you walk out of the light, whether you trip over the bear or not, you're going to find some freedom because you're going now forward in a direction that you can see with clarity. And I think that's what we have to do is be willing to potentially trip over the bear, but at least we're walking toward the light and calling out the unnamed is so critical to do that because we cannot move forward unless we're willing to pull things out into the light. It's, it's just Mm -hmm. that bear is there, but so is the light. Why do you think it's so difficult for us to voice the secrets we hold? I think because as a society, we're very focused on image. It's great to have the white picket fence house, the perfect family with two kids, a boy and a girl. Um, We always attend church on Sundays. We're always dressed cleanly and nicely. We always drive the fanciest cars and we're not willing to be real. When is the last time you remember walking up to someone you met that you know and saying, hey, how are you? And they actually respond with their true answer. I personally, I I can't think of any because we are afraid to be real. 
but human connections can only work if we're real. You can only encourage someone if you're willing to talk about the ugly. You can only grow if you're willing to acknowledge your mistakes. And that requires being real. And with the real comes the not pretty side of life. Sometimes Bob Jones next door's car breaks down. Might be a Mercedes, but it's still got issues too. Sometimes Linda and Susie over at the neighbor's house misbehave. They're not always on their best behavior. Sometimes sinners sit in church. It's an amazing concept to think about. But the reality is none of us have our stuff together. Not any single one of us. We like to act like it, but we can't grow and move forward if we're not willing to say, hey, we've all got issues. Every single one of us. There is not a single person on earth who does not have something that they're struggling with. And it's very challenging to be willing to be humble to say, Yep, my life is not all together. But when you're real and you experience that human connection, that's when you start forming relationships that push you toward growing in your life and in your character. And it's very hard to do, but it's something that our culture does not like to acknowledge because it's easier to just say, yes, my life is pink plastic and perfect. One of the things about controlling an abusive behavior I've come to realize is that it can literally come from anyone anywhere. It can be physical, verbal, mental, and emotional. And often we don't even always recognize it as being what it is. And, you know, you kind of talked about that where you couldn't kind of even categorize it. We dismiss it or we chalk it up to personality clashes or miscommunication. From your perspective, what are some of the ways we can be better at recognizing controlling an abusive behavior of any kind when it's happening um, to us? I think separating popular catchphrases of, oh, he's acting narcissistic and actually identifying what is toxic behavior, what is healthy behavior, um, acknowledging that emotions are what they are, um, but actions have consequences. Um, and anyone can make bad decisions, <laughs> whether it's an authority figure, whether it's your grandma, whether it's your teacher, um, whether it's a parent or a spouse, we're all capable of making bad decisions. And some of those decisions can be actions. Doesn't mean you are necessarily an abusive person, but you can do actions that are abusive, whether it's mm -hmm. verbal um, and saying something very toxic, whether it's emotional and guilt tripping your spouse, whether it's um, physical and just losing your marbles and getting angry and I don't know, hitting somebody across the face, whatever the case may be. There are so many different forms of abuse and they all have their own set of challenges that come with it. Their physical abuse is not worse than verbal abuse. Mm -hmm. It's not worse than emotional abuse. I mean, there's so many different side effects that come with each form mm -hmm. and being willing to call them what they are is important. Um, but understanding what they really are is, is critical because it's so popular in our day of when we're, we're finally starting to recognize that mental health is a part of physical health, that we throw around these terms, oh, he's bipolar, oh, she's just narcissistic without realizing what they mean. So defining our terms is really important, understanding what they mean, and then being willing to call them honestly when they come up 
helps to define the issue. Again, you cannot stab in the dark if you do not know what you're stabbing in the dark. Mm -hmm. Um, Defining terms is really critical for knowing partly what the issue is. To go along with that, what role do boundaries play in taking back emotional territory that you've ceded to toxic or unhealthy people? This one's challenging. Um, For me personally, I remember when I started learning about boundaries, boundaries are not there to push people out. Boundaries are there to keep people in. If you really love someone in any relationship, could be a friend, could be a spouse, you're going to have boundaries because those are healthy. Those are, this is what is permissible. This is what is not permissible because I love you. It is important that these are upheld. These are not a manipulation tool. They're not a guilt trip. They're, they're not something that we use to try to get our way. Boundaries are just healthy, um, generic guidelines that we use that we all have. We just sometimes ignore, um, to establish what we believe is healthy in our life. Um, Some people have poor boundaries, meaning they allow themselves to be treated awfully. And some people have good boundaries and they're willing to communicate and use those, you know, use their big people words to say, hey, this made me uncomfortable when we talked about this today. Is it possible that we can avoid it in the future? Or, hey, I noticed that when you did this and talk about them in a way that's not a wall, it's a tool for communication. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I started creating boundaries for the first time in my adult life um, that are different than you create for children or um, you know, between you know, a parent and a kid, um, my adult boundaries, I had to sit back and go, why am I responding so strongly to this? This is because it bothers me. And for me, learning to respond in a healthy manner manner to the boundaries that were being pushed and poked in and and you know people are trying to put holes in these boundaries to see sometimes intentionally how far they could get and other times just unintentionally they didn't mean to 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 push my boundary um and i responded so strongly and i had to learn there are healthy ways to set boundaries and there are unhealthy ways and both are both are something that i think we all have to learn um some by experience, some by just observation, but boundaries are required to have those healthy relationships. And they actually help you in your healing because it gives you a sense of um, emotional static to be able to say, this is consistent. This is permissible. This is okay. And it helps you with healing a lot in many cases. How did you learn to build healthier community following everything you've been through and how can someone in a similar circumstance as you do the same? Growing up, I had this idea that friends were the people who lived next door to you and you'd always hang out with your friends who were your neighbors. But the reality is, especially for adults, it's very hard to make friends. In this day and age, it is just hard to make friends. It is even harder to keep them because we live such busy lives and have so many responsibilities. I mean, personally, I work right now 60 hours a week. I don't really have a lot of time for socialization. So the time that I do have is intentional and it's with people that I know will push me to be a better person. It's not 
people that I just chill with because I know it's it's intentional. And I think this is the first step in creating a community is to look at what's important to you. What are areas you're struggling in? What are areas that you want more encouraging, like encouragement? What are areas that you can encourage other people in? What can you offer to the table as well? And realizing that those things are what you're looking for in relationships. Um, someone who's going to be there for you um, through the bad times and good in the same way that you've been for me for years. Um, what are those relationships that are going to challenge you to improve your life? And it doesn't have to be a lengthy theological conversation every time you meet about how this is important and that. I mean, it can just be checking in on a friend, calling them on the phone and saying, hey, I know you're having a really bad week, but I just wanted to remind you that you're loved. It can be taking a friend out to lunch when you have time and saying, hey, I only have 30 minutes for lunch, but I just wanted to check in with you and see how you're doing today. It's very easy to create those moments when they're priorities, but you have to know what your priorities are because you have them, everybody has them. It's just determining what are those priorities in my relationships? How are they directing the people that I choose? And then realizing that they don't have to be your neighbors next door. You can have friends on the other side of the world that are meaningful. You can have friends that you only talk to once or twice every year. You can truly build those relationships. The more time you spend with them, of course, the deeper the relationship's gonna be. But you don't have to live next door to someone in order to develop those relationships. You can intentionally create them over the phone, over email. Um, and finding those people is challenging. Um, I feel really blessed. None of the people in my community I intentionally looked for, they were just in my path and God brought them along and I'm very thankful for each of them. But it's one of those things where you have to be intentional when you do meet those people. What purpose are they serving in your life and what purpose are you serving in theirs? Is it just to pass the time or is it actually meaningful relationships? Because that's what's gonna drive your community is what your priorities are. In your estimation as a Christian and also as a rape survivor, what are some of the ways the Christian community and society at large can help provide a safer place for people such as yourself? Ooh, this goes back to calling the, the dark out of the dark into the light. Um, there was a time back in church history where we used to, as Christians go, oh my goodness, they're not, they're not Jewish. They can't be a part of the church. They don't look like us. They don't have the same traditions and habits and they don't eat the same food. And they're just, they're different than us. Are we allowed to let them into the church? And Jesus said, essentially, all are equal to me. There's not a better person. There's not a lesser person. All of you are sinners and you're all welcome in my, my house. And I think we've lost sight of this. I really do because we turn people away who don't look like us, who aren't raised like us, who don't dress like us, who have different hobbies, who come from different backgrounds. I mean, oh my goodness, 
Bob and Linda are divorced. We can't let them in the church. They'd be an awful example of marriage to everybody I know. Um, oh my goodness, there's that single girl over there. She's got a baby on her hip. She's got no dad involved. Obviously, she'd be a bad person to let in the church. I mean, we make these list of rules of people who are okay to be in our community. They all have to look like us and sound and dress and eat like us or whatever the case may be. And we forget that the church is made up of sinners, mm-hmm. very diverse sinners, but all sinners. And all of us are human and all of us want to be heard and loved. And we're all equally deserving of that. Um, and it's very easy to nitpick people out of your community. Um, rape survivors are very much a huge population of this because I don't think the church really realizes how much of its women have been harmed. Um, one by society, but two physically or emotionally or whatever the case may be. And two, they don't know how to adequately deal with these people. Um, I had so much hate and so much judgment when I finally had the courage to be able to say, hey, this is what I've gone through to the point where I ended up leaving a church because of this. Um, There was just so much, well, you should have done this. Well, were you the cause of this? It must have been your fault. And they don't know how to process trauma. And the church really doesn't know how to respond to grief and trauma. It's just a huge issue in the United States, particularly. Um, And we have to sit back and realize that ultimately everyone goes through some part of their life that they'd like to keep hidden. Um, And rape survivors are no different. They feel this shame and embarrassment, like it's somehow their fault. And then they automatically get this response of, oh, how dare you from the church? when we should be reaching out and loving and saying, okay, one out of every six people in this church has had some form of physical abuse. And then when you sit back in your church and you realize that, and you realize it's your sister or your mom's best friend or your grandma, and it's people that are close to you, not just some random stranger on the street who is dressing like a floozy, you realize that these are people in your life that you care about. And how is that going to change your perspective of them? It shouldn't. You should just love them more because honestly, they need a little extra love. They've been through a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's how the church should respond. We should go, these are not some strangers that we need to cast off. These are our family. Mm -hmm. And the people who enter the church who have been struggling and who have gone through rape and abuse of other kinds need to feel that same love just because they're not your sister doesn't mean they don't deserve love. Yeah. We need to be reaching out and saying, how can we impact these people? How can we help them feel supported and give them the resources that they need? Because there are a lot of um, situations post-rape that these women need help with. Um, Therapy is a huge one, helping them to know that they don't have to be shamed for this, you know, they can, they can continue to heal medical services, sometimes honestly housing, because I know personally, several girls who have gone through several, you know, similar situations almost to a T and had to move out of the county um, or even out of state because their community laughed them off and said, oh, he was such a good guy. He'd never do anything like that. And the guy continued to harass and harass and put them in unsafe 
situations and they had to forcibly flee their living situation because, I mean, this is not uncommon. This is the world that women live in. And the church should be a welcoming place to say, hey, we see you're fleeing. We see you're being harassed. We see you're struggling and hurting. This is a person that we can love on and not just the people who look like us, but the people who are struggling and hurting. I, one thing I love going through this whole journey with you is just seeing how you learn to give yourself permission to celebrate things, to find some form of joy. You know, um, I remember you talking about being able to get your first Christmas tree or your first birthday cake or being able to give yourself permission to be able to say, I am allowed to fill in the blank. And I know that that's something that's very common with people who've been abused is they they've been told you're not allowed to whatever and can you just briefly talk about how important that is to be able to give yourself permission to celebrate things to be able to say that it's okay and you are allowed to be able to do things that are meaningful and things that are you know help you move forward I think in the case of a lot of abused individuals, there's this self-shame and um, minimization of self in general. And for me personally, my experience is obviously not everybody's, but for me personally, when I moved out of a controlling home and I had the chance to be an adult at 25 for the first time, um, without asking permission to cut two inches off my hair and wait the three to five business days for the response, yes, you may. You know, just being ultimately controlled and then going through physical abuse, I think I had to realize that I had to celebrate A, the little things, because when you're going through healing, everything looks sad. It's just all sad and gray yeah. and tears. It's just yeah. not fun. There's no fun part about healing. It really isn't. But celebrating the milestones is so huge. So for me, one of those big things was being able to go to Walmart back pre-COVID, of course, but at midnight and buy myself a whole cake because I could. Now there were consequences to eating the whole cake. I was very sick that night, but I had the opportunity to say, you know what? I did really well today. I'm going to celebrate this. And it's very challenging to do when your mindset is fixed on, this is just awful, life sucks. And being able to say, we can celebrate the positive. Um, it goes back to the little clause. And yeah. I feel awful today. I could not get out of bed. I was so depressed. And I still managed to make myself breakfast. Mm -hmm. I can celebrate that and I'm struggling today because my self-esteem is down the drain. I just, I'm so tired and discouraged and I'm really struggling with my mental health. And I went grocery shopping and took care of the needs. There's such a joy in being able to say that and because it acknowledges, yeah, I don't feel great right now. Yeah, I'm struggling in life but there is still hope 
because that and exists. And I think that's really important to be able to celebrate the milestones. You don't have to celebrate the milestones when everything's all hunky-dory and every everything in life is just aligning as it's supposed to. You have to celebrate the milestones when the hail is coming down, when the sky looks gray and nothing's going right and you just lost your job, find that and because that helps you to move forward with certainty while still acknowledging this is where we are, but this is also where we are and we're gonna choose the joy when life just doesn't feel very joyful at the moment. How has your faith been shaped by your journey and how has the grace of God become real to you through it? Realizing that he does not hate me. I think that sounds so funny to hear from a Christian, but realizing that God does not hate you because he's allowed all of these things to happen is life-changing. It's mind-blowing. It's acknowledging, oh my goodness, he still cares for me. And I think for a lot of people, they have to work through other emotions that go through that. I mean, how could God allow this to happen to me? And there's a lot of anger or confusion And those are valid questions. You see all through scripture, all of these really wise men and women who go, oh my goodness, this is happening in my life. It's awful. Literally half the book of Psalms is probably David who God loved saying, woe is me. This is just miserable. And Mm -hmm. acknowledging that that's just the case, but also at the same time, realizing that because you went through this, there is a reason. I am not God. I am not entitled to know the mind of God. I should not ask to be entitled to know the mind of God. But I think it's human to ask those questions of why is this happening to me, to God? And working through those emotions, he expects them we're human. But at the same time, realizing that there is a good, a, a good reason for them. We may not know that, this side of heaven. We really, I mean, and that's a hard thing to accept. We may not know the answer for why bad things happen, this side of heaven. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. to acknowledge that for me personally four plus years out from my family abandonment and rape and all of the bad things that happened during that season of life that honestly still happen I mean things happen every week um I've sat back and I've gone you know I would not wish that rape on anyone mm-hmm wish it to happen a second time. In fact, the first time was so awful. That was just, let's mind wipe that from my mind, from my brain. Um, But I am thankful, and it sounds weird to say, but I'm thankful that it did happen because everything that has gone through in my life that I have gone kicking and screaming and complaining about to God, literally everything I've complained about, he has given me the ability to use that to hold somebody's hand later in the future and say, you know, that wasn't fun. I can sympathize there. I will never have the same experiences as everybody. I mean, one rape survivor is not the same as the next rape survivor situation. Mm -hmm. They're all individual and different and unique, but it's allowed me to begin understanding what the empathy of God looks like and compassion of God looks like, because Mm -hmm. those are critical in my field for one, but those are critical for a Christian to have. And it's very important when you hold somebody's hand that you share empathy and compassion and go, I will never know how that personally affected you as much as I try because I wasn't in your shoes. But I've personally experienced some of that and I just can't imagine how much you must be hurting right now 
Yeah. Can I be a shoulder to cry on? Right. Can I check on you in the middle of the night when you're having a panic attack? Do you need me to be your emergency contact when you're feeling physically harmful to yourself because this is so depressing and anxiety inducing to deal with? It's one of those things where it's difficult to name because everyone has their own unique set of circumstances and they're all going through something at some point in their life. But it's allowed me to have such positive um, tools that I can use in the future that again, I would never wish on anybody else. But the reality is we live in a really broken world mm-hmm. and everybody's hurting. There's not anyone who is not hurting at some point in their life over something. And being able to sit there and have the skills and the tools that I've unfortunately gone through for good reason is going to somehow at some point hopefully be used to share hope with someone else Mm -hmm. when they're going through that and if that's what it takes for me to have that skill set everything I've gone through was worth it Mm. was not fun was not fun would not recommend 10 out of 10 awful but was worth it because it had a purpose and I think we have to remember that everything we go through has a purpose. We're not entitled to know that purpose, but it all has a purpose. And once we're on the other side of heaven, it will be so easy to look at God and go, wow, that was really cool. I hated that experience, but now I can see what you had for it. And it is so worth it. So that's my, my take on it. It's, it's not fun, but it's worth it. I always like to ask my guests this when they come on the podcast, if you could sum up your story in a singular idea or quote or favorite scripture verse, what would it be? Hmm, that's hard. I think there's a lot of terms that I've thrown around over the past couple of years to name situations in a group or just categorize my experiences. Um, But ultimately, I think the one that seems to continue resiliently is hope. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's very easy to lose hope in a dark world. It's very easy to not see the positive. Um, It's very easy to get lost in the negative when we're acknowledging the negative. But hope is the idea that even though Everything in life at the moment feels like it's crashing down in some form or fashion. There's hope at the end of the day because of who Jesus is, not because of what we're capable of, just strong arming our way through life, not because everything's going to turn out rosy at the end of the day. Some people go through years and years and years of amazing things I could never dream of powering my way through. but they still have hope. And I think it's important to know what that hope is based off of. Because if your hope is based off of what you're capable of doing, life is going to be depressing. But if your hope is based off of Jesus and what he's doing in your life, Mm -hmm. anything is possible. Healing is possible. Working through challenging situations and conflicts is possible. It's all possible because he gives us that hope. 
if someone is listening today who has yet to identify their unnamed thing to voice the pain they've been holding inside, what comfort or advice would you leave them with as we close out? Oh my goodness. I would just sit across the table from them and I would say, friend, you are not the only one. Mm. Because I think it's very easy to feel isolated when we're in pain. And it's very easy to say, I don't want to talk about this to anyone. It hurts. I'd rather keep it buried. It's very easy to say, I'm afraid to bring this out into the light because of the consequences. It's very easy to say, I don't have the physical strength to face this. It just hurts. It's not fun. And it's really encouraging to know that, A, you're not the only one. There are people praying for you all over the world at different times that you may never get to meet. But Jesus hears them. And ultimately, your hope for your healing and for moving forward is not based on your ability to make scary revelations about bringing the dark into the light. It's not the ability to somehow toxically put on a smile and say, everything's great, it's fine. It's not your ability to just power through on your worst days. It's Jesus sitting there with you and saying, I felt every possible negative response. I felt rejection. I felt a physical abuse during crucifixion. I felt abandonment. I felt hatred. I felt all of these things while still loving others. And that's a really hard one to acknowledge, but he does the same thing for each of us. It's not anything that we've done. It's just who he is. And I think for those who are struggling in the moment, or who may struggle in the future as they bring dark into light, just realizing that he's not going to let you go through this process, even when you don't feel close to him. He's not just going to somehow vanish like other people may in your life. He's there consistently. He was there before the incident. He was there during, and he was there after. Even when you feel alone, you really aren't alone. You're not, you're not isolated from him. He's right there beside you, and he is able to give you that hope and carry you through. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. This discussion has been both inspiring and informative, and I, I hope people take away from this a greater awareness of abuse victims, as well as perhaps a desire to take a harder look at their own unnamed things. You are a blessing, sweet girl. Thank you so much for having me today and just a big hug to everyone listening to the uh, podcast today. Know that you are loved and heard even when you feel like you can't talk about your unnamed things. My goodness, what a powerful story and a testimony to the grace and work of Jesus in a life. Again, I'm grateful to Rachel for coming on here to tell her story as reliving such things is never easy. I trust you will walk away from this inspired to address the difficult parts of yourself, as well as give voice to and love on those around you who may be hiding an unnamed secret of their own. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, I hope you've enjoyed today's content and will listen and subscribe to other content on here. 
If you want to get in touch with me, I'm active on the following platforms, Twitter at Open to Grace 2015, Instagram at Open to Grace Alaska, MeWe at Katherine Singer, and True Social at Open to Grace, capital AK. You can also follow my weekly blog at www.graceopens.blogspot.com, where I post additional thoughts and information pertaining to mental wellness. Thanks for being with us today and for taking the time to hear Rachel Redmond's incredible story. I hope to see you back here next week, and until then, don't forget that Grace will always meet you where you are.